I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Podcast with Callum and Johnny. Irish? Are you, are this... you being Irish? No, it's not Irish. I was trying to figure out what get... mangled accent that was. Yeah, it's, that's as bad as um, I'm going to storm out like Russell Crowe. <laughs> if you think that's Irish, you want your ears looking at. And, and was that your attempt at Australian? No, it's my attempt at Russell Crowe. Doing I'm Irish, Irish. Uh, doing uh, Nottingham. Yeah, whatever that's you're right. doing. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be something i don't know it, it's a mess it really really is anyway this week um your ho- your show is hosted by someone called callum who's that that's me and who and are someone you called johnny that's me well hey so we're both uh, here <laughs> evidently just about in body if not in mind <laughs> Yeah, this is going to be a fun, fun time, this episode, I think. <laughs> Lots of funness to talk about and joy and happiness. Wonderful, wonderful joy. And I've just finished watching one of the movies and I can tell the a rip, rip, tickling fun adventure was had. Oh, it's going to be a barrel of laughs this week. Anywho, um, if you do want to find a barrel of laughs, kind of middle of any week, where might someone find such a thing? Well, you'd go to our Instagram and also our Facebook and you'd look for Untitled Film Podcast and there we ask questions and we do all sorts of fun things, fun things around the campfire and we ask questions and this question, going with our theme of fun, 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 is what film most traumatised you? Because my logic and my reasoning was that we'll be reviewing two movies about the Khmer Rouge regime in Cambodia. So this ain't no happy podcast around the campfire. So let's talk about trauma. Do you want to go first or should I? 
Go on then, I'll give you a couple. So, uh, like, from a childhood age, Bambi is is well and truly in the mix there. Oh, yes. Uh, I still struggle to, like, think about Bambi too much without willing up, and that's because I first saw it when I was, like, three or four. And, and I remember, like, my parents bought the video, and I just, like, should we watch Bambi? And I would, like, never again. I don't think I ever video got watched a second time. <laughs> um, and then I was thinking more recently, the picture you put up, Come and See, is a, is a very traumatic movie and i recommend anyone watches it because it's a very important movie i think and it's just and also it's just batshit crazy the director used real ammunition rounds so when you see the people the actors being scared they're probably pretty scared for their lives in case something went wrong and i also thought i really hate anything to do with eyes the slumdog millionaire there's that scene where they're burning out the children's eyes um that's pretty dark yeah, they have a problem with eyeballs as well. Uh, so a horror movie example would be something like um, Zombie 2, which was one of those Italian schlock zombies where a, wo- a zombie pulls a woman through a splintered door and her face and eyes get closer and closer and closer. I can't watch it. But let's go back to the childhood one. Um, apparently, when I was six years old, when we went to see James and the Giant Peach, the bit where the rhino comes through the clouds scared the shit out of me apparently i had to be escorted away from the cinema i was screaming apparently i remember none of this but my but my mum says that i'm screaming uh, it's quite traumatic to be fair for a young child (laughs) yeah it is it's it's a it's a hard one (laughs) definitely do we have any answers uh no we didn't except for promoted on reality records good old reality records our number one fan the whole gang anyway Excellent. And yeah, on from there, we tend to then go into a section we like to call the news. And I've asked Callum for fun news today because the rest of the podcast might not, wow, it's not going to be as, let's say, is not have the level of brevity that some of our podcasts may have. We'll be talking about um, some pretty heavy subject matter. Yes. If, uh, well, if you think genocides are heavy, then. <laughs> I think people tend to, yes. <laughs> Um, anyway, so Callum, what is your first piece of fun news? Well, I'll start off with the most fun one, and that's Jamie Foxx will play God. <laughs> and I'm in need. Uh, but he's going to play God opposite Mickey Rourke's Devil in not another church movie. So I think this is going to be a parody of all those weird evangelical uh, Christian uh, movies that glut up the cinemas over there. It might not get much of a release over here because those films don't tend to. So a parody of that probably won't get much um, seen over here. But I just found the thought of Jamie Foxx playing God and Mickey Rourke in his washed up state playing the devil to be a highly amusing image. So um, I've been chuckling about that thought. And I like the idea of taking those films down a peg or two because they're taken very seriously in america so this is going to be uh, mocking those god's not dead uh you know a whole bunch of those like a million of those films come out and they make loads of money in america and nothing worldwide very good um i thought i would start off with fun things um who out there likes the internet do you like the internet yeah i'm a fan of the internet you could say so there's the the biggest internet video awards of the year they happen every year um the streamy awards was this week oh fun Do you know what the streamy awards are vaguely i mean i know a bunch of content creators that go there and are nominated for things but i've never really paid attention to it i have to say so they're basically for everything to do with youtube streaming that kind of stuff they have lots of different categories 
So I'm gonna I'm gonna do a quiz for you, Callum. So oh, if you okay. can guess who wins which categories. I'm not gonna do every category, um, but I'm gonna do some. So who do you think won the creator of the year? Mm, let's say Mr. Beast. It was Mr. Beast. I think that's at least two years in a row, possibly more. Um collaborator of the year. You you know half of the answer because it's Mr. Beast. Um, who do you think Mr. Beast collaborated with to win collaboration of the year? I, I, to be honest, I only watch Mr. Beast when I'm around yours. I have no idea. It's Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Oh, I didn't know he did something with him. I didn't either. Cool. So that shows how big a thing that was. Um, I've just lost internet connection and lost <laughs> my... Uh... Your new Wi-Fi is playing up. Yeah, which is strange because <laughs> I'm speaking to you over it. But... That's true. Yeah, that is true. Um, we're back we're back in the room okay cool 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 right um (laughs) who do you think won the best animated series on on youtube streaming animated series there are a bunch of them they're really good uh but i'm hard pressed to remember their names i know you send some of them to me and i watch an episode or two of them but i can't remember the name so just one one that i really like actually hell of a boss nice Fun. I, quite, I quite like a bit of YouTube animation. There's a few good ones out there. Hell of a Boss, I recommend. Um, Murder Drones. And there's a new one that's only got a pilot that I've forgotten its name. Lack of Daisy, which is about cats, but who were in the 20s and in Prohibition times. Is that based on a comic book? It is based on a very yeah, long-running... Yeah, um, comic book. Very long-running... Web comic? Web comic, yeah. 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 And then who do you think, well, I'm just doing names. That I know. There's a few names on here, right now, actually. Who do you think won the best technology vlogger? Oh, I, I have no idea. I'm going to be honest. I don't know anything about that kind of thing. Wow. It's Marquez Brownlee, which is pretty, I would have thought, fairly par for the course. Uh, yes Theory, have you heard of them? Uh, no, not really. Okay. No. <laughs> yes, there is a YouTube channel where people do things where they're like, you kind of almost have to like say yes, a bit like yes, man. Oh, okay. But as That's a TV, fun. but as a YouTube channel, uh, they won best editing, um, best brand engagement, Insta three sixty. Well done. Yes, well done, Insta three sixty. <laughs> round of applause all round. What do you think? This is this expands out into the real world more. What do you think brand of the year is? Oh, I've no idea. <laughs> What is the biggest movie of the year? Oh, uh, Barbie. Barbie. So Barbie Mattel. is brand of the year. Barbie and Mattel, yeah. Yeah, brand of the year. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, that's interesting. Anyway, uh, learning education was Tier Zoo. Should have been jet lagged the game, in my opinion, but there we go. The bastards. The bastards, indeed. Um, yeah, that's some, some things from the internet. thought I'd bring that in. We don't do the internet very often on here. Um, and that is more lightweight than what we're going to talk about later on. How about you, Callum? What is your second piece of fun, exciting news? Second bit of fun, exciting news. There's a new trailer out for a movie called The Marsh King's Daughter with uh, Ben Mendelsohn and Daisy Ridley. It's a thriller. And um, I, I'm a little bit excited to see where this goes because being a hero role is such a flattening thing for an actor. It's bland every time. It was bad when Daniel Radcliffe did it. So we're not really sure yet if she's a good actor or if she was a bland actor matched with bland material. But 
the weird thing about Daisy Ridley is that she's made something like eight movies back to back and they're just coming out now. So this is going to be the true test. Is she a good actor that couldn't get over the bad dialogue of Star Wars? Or is she a bad actor that was perfectly suited to it? Is she Kira Knightley? Is she Emma Watson? And this is going to be the test. And it's a pretty good looking thriller. I like, like Ben Mendelsohn a lot. And, you know, he's always good as a, as a baddie. And he is the uh, titular um, Marsh King and Daisy Ridley is the daughter. So let's see. Hopefully, hopefully it'll be fun. Intri- you know, I just want to ask a question on that. When you were saying, is she Kieran Knightley or is she Emma Watson? Who are you saying is good and who are you saying is bad? Because I don't really like either of them, but there we go. I quite like Kieran Knightley. I, I think, well, I think she's the best example of that sort of school of acting. Too many teeth. Too many teeth and the posh accent. Um, but yeah. when she's good, she can be very good. So like... Um, Pride and Prejudice, I think, is a deserved Oscar nomination, for example. Um, but, you know, she's not great all the time, but she's the best example of that, I think. She just, um, Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, no actor could have made that good, just as uh, Christian Bale and Heath Ledger were originally rumoured to be the part that Orlando Bloom played. They would have been equally as bland, even though they're very good actors. So it's just one of those things. I don't know if I agree with that, but, but anyway. At least they they wouldn't have been as good as they potentially could be because yeah, yeah. they're good actors, because that part is so bland. Fair enough. So we'll see. We'll see where, where things fall, shake out. Fair enough. Anyway, that, that brings, I think, <laughs> oh, brings that piece of news to the end. And my second piece of news, so... Denis Villeneuve, director of such films as Arrival and Dune Part 1 and Dune Part 2, has mentioned that actually he decided he wants to make Dune into a trilogy and that there's words on paper for Dune Part 3. Now, is this going to be Lord of the Rings or is this going to be The Hobbit? Because there's only one book that Dune is based on and it slightly concerns me that they're going to, he's going to try and split it into three. But dum, dum, dum. This could be the moment where it all goes wrong, but we'll see. Hopefully it doesn't. We shall see. I feel like there's enough of a universe there, but it has to be, you'll have to add quite a lot of flesh to the bones. Yes. Then I suppose people always argued that it should have been a TV, or it wouldn't have had the budget, but it needed, but people have always argued a bit like Watchmen and stuff. It was, it's a bit unfilmable as a, um, as a movie as, uh, was originally tried to happen in the eighties. Um, so maybe there is enough material there for three movies, but I just, it always seemed, I always thought it was planned as a, as a two-parter. So you see, I always, get slightly concerned when they're like, it's a two-parter, but I think we can add a third part on. It's certainly enough to give you pause. But you never know, he might pull it out of the bag. Also, I really hope they don't leave it with like a cliffhanger ending because this, let's be honest, the majority of um, like movies at the box office this year have flopped. Like there has only been, of the kind of like 20 or so temple movies that have come out, only five or six of them probably have even made their budget back. Um, It just doesn't seem, I think there's just too much out there. I think people are a bit, cinema fatigued for yeah, just I think like so. um and i think there's been a couple of big events like barbenheimer and um strangely super mario brothers i still not quite get that myself but <laughs> um and obviously spider-man and stuff and they've taken a lot of stuff away and, and there's been some really big scalps like who'd have thought the newest mission impossible with all the great hype and the amazing reviews would have it might just about scrape break even but it doesn't look like it at the moment like there's been a lot of big scalps this year 
Yeah, it's been a strange summer. Uh, people have just been a bit more discerning, I think, with their money and uh, what they're they're doing with their their spare change. No, no, it's been yeah, a very strange summer from money. I, I, like I think, I suspect if you added all of the box office totals up, they probably maybe would equal a normal summer. But I just I get this vibe that um, there's a lot of stuff delayed over COVID that's all suddenly come out at once. So you've almost got, it almost feels like you've got two years worth of blockbusters out in the space of a year. And I think it's just really saturated the market. But I don't think Disney have had a successful movie this year. Oh, well, except for Guardians, but you, even that was a mild, oh, yeah. that was kind of moderately successful. It wasn't huge. But like outside of that, they've had at least two animated films flop. They've had pretty, thing, pretty much everything else to do with Marvel's flopped. They had The Little Mermaid flopped. Like they've not had a successful run this year. I think I think I saw a someone worked out this year. They reckon they've lost about a billion dollars already on movies. It's been a bad year, and also their television isn't doing much better. Um, this no, although Star I suspect, show is doing very badly. I think. Although I suspect, as long as the subscriber numbers stay there with Disney Plus, it's probably fine. Sure. I think most people won't get rid of Disney Plus because there's enough back catalogue. But yeah, they don't seem to be getting like great reviews for their new things, that's for sure. Yeah, so it's all fun for them. Yeah. In the house of mouse. I think I'm glad. I'm glad that people are walking with their feet because I feel like for too long, mediocrity has been celebrated. I think people are getting maybe a little bit more discerning with I their... think so too. And of course, with these strikes continuing, there's a whole almost half a year where movies haven't been made it could usher in a period where more mid-budget films are made to fill the gaps because they don't take nearly so long to make when productions come back to life that's the hope though i've heard that a few times from a few people yeah i think it makes sense as well um we can hope definitely anyway that is our fun exciting super fun news i hope you had a barrel of laughs there because there won't be any for the rest of the podcast. Strap in! So, Callum, what movies are we talking about this week? Well, the first one is going to be First They Killed My Father, which is the fourth directorial effort from Angelina Jolie. And um, just uh, to kind of put you out of your misery, both films are about uh, the war in Cambodia in the mid to late 70s. And then the second film is the uh, more celebrated... Well, it wasn't a war... It was a genocide that yes. kind of was bookended by two wars. Yes. Um, also, we're going to be talking about uh, The Killing Fields, the Roland Joffe film from 1984, which was a big, um, celebrated, multiple Oscar nominations, one big Oscar win. Um, and multiple BAFTAs, I think, because I think it is a British production. If it I is remember. a British production. So I think it right. was, um, it, we won several at uh, the BAFTAs, and it was nominated for a loss at the Oscars. I think the big take-home was Best Supporting Actor because of that character. But we'll get into that. So, yes, very cheery subject matter. So, um, first, I guess it's um, first they killed my father. Um, should Do you I want take, to take this one away? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy, to, happy to take this one. So, it's uh, based on the um, Cambodian author and human rights activist, and I hope I get this pronunci- um, pronunciation right, Luang Ung. Uh, and uh, it's recounted from her child's point of view, uh, because she's only a very young, uh, that she suffered as a child under the rule of the Khmer Rouge um, in the mid-70s. Uh, uh, a middle-class Cambodian girl sees her family's life 
ripped apart when uh, the Khmer Rouge invade Cambodia and uh, they're taken to the work camps and from there things just get far more harrowing. And uh, yes, it's directed by Angelina Jolie. And uh, Johnny, what did you think of First They Killed My Father? I think harrowing is a very good word yeah. to describe it. Uh, I think it's it's a very interesting movie. Earlier on, we mentioned the movie Come and See. And I think it takes a lot from that in that you've got this kind of singular protagonist who is a child. In the case of this, a younger child, a seven-year-old child, uh, um, and it's it's told very much from their point of view. So it's what they see. It's snippets of adults' conversations. There's other than like the first intro bit. There's no kind of like news footage or anything. It's her being spoken to by people, or her peering through a door and hearing a conversation with her parents, or hearing a conversation between other people in the village, or seeing things out of the corner of her, her eyes she's maybe not meant to see, and kind of piecing what's happening together. Um, and it's told in a kind of a linear format over the course of, I assume, three years, because that's the, the war. Uh, Non-Pen fell in, uh, I think, January uh, uh, 1975. And I think the, um, I think it was December or January, nine, uh, I think it was either just, I think just kind of between December um, uh, 88 and January 89 was when the Vietnamese really kind of took the country back. Um, so what took it back to get over? So yeah, it's told within that time uh, and it kind of shows what happens to her family. Um, I think it's, yeah, incredibly well shot, incredibly moving because the, the fact that it's told from the, the point of a child and obviously the thing with children is they're quite, I, I think there's in the room, there's a really good expression that you got them out while you still rubber. They're kind of quite, um, they just kind of get on with things. Like they get sad about certain things, but they kind of almost, can these more easily brush things off? Like it seems anyway. I'm sure not in the long run, but in the short run. And kind of like just her kind of, it was almost like just plodding through, plodding through this horrible mayhem uh, that's going on. Um, and yeah, no, this, I think it tells the story very well. It tells it from an interesting point of view. Um, it, it clearly really cares about its subject matter. Um, all the acting is brilliant. And I suspect there's a lot of people in it who are first-time actors, um, both the adults and the kids. Um, yeah, so overall, really, really liked it. How about you? Yeah, no, very much the same. Uh, I think it's worth saying that um, Angelina Jolie is someone, it's not lip service for her. She does really care because uh, she has an adopted child from Cambodia. She is a citizen of Cambodia, I recently learned. And um, the script is co-written by the uh, person whose memoir it was based on, uh, Loong Ong. Uh, so it has a real sense of authenticity. Uh, you don't get the sense like this is Hollywood invading in order to tell a uh, a sob story or, you know, emotionally manipulative sort of ooh care, ooh care sort of movie. It's uh, not... she, she really fell in love with Cambodia when she went to film Tomb Raider there and I think it's had a massive affinity. Oh, with is that right? I, I, yeah, didn't, yeah. I didn't know that was the reason. But yeah, it was the first time she went to Cambodia was, was when they filmed Tomb Raider there. But you get the sense that she really cares she has a very good attention for detail her di <laughs> her, her directorial efforts to this point uh, have been mixed uh, this is her fourth feature the ones before this uh including the probably the most high profile one was broken and she also did something that could only be called a vanity project with her and brad pitt where she was credited as angelina jolie pitt 
and those kind of fell a bit flat. They were a bit damp. Uh, this you can sense that she doesn't, she isn't doing this for plaudits or for praise. You'd get the sense that she does this because this is the story that she cares about. So it's filmed in the native language. Uh, it's not uh, done by actors who are putting on accents, uh, American actors or, uh, you know, um, actors speaking in English but with accents or something like that. This isn't done for the audience's benefit. Uh, the direction is very deliberate. It's uh, very much a case of um, the camera lingers over shots. It, it, uh, it follows at a, a footstep pace rather than trying to ramp up, you know, because there are ma many harrowing moments. There's uh, children taken into... Uh, uh, turned into child soldiers, shown how to make to make uh, landmines. There's a scene where she, the little one of the uh, young women, has to walk very slowly through a man uh, minefield because she knows that if she takes one wrong step, she can get blown up, and people are getting blown up around her. Uh, someone like Oliver Stone in Platoon, for example, would want to add flaming red eyes or one of his other weird little tricks. Or And so many other directors would have done one of their big things to go, ooh, care, to the audience that probably doesn't know a lot about this. And to be fair, I didn't know. I knew the broad sweep of this history. I didn't know very specific details. Uh, so that, and that's absolutely the way to do it, um, to, to take a deliberate pace rather than to uh, over-reg things or dramatize things. I, th I think it's a very intelligent approach. And I hopefully um, this will be seen in her next directorial efforts because I think she's going to continue this rather than acting. I think this is her real passion. So hopefully we'll see more of this kind of work from Angelina Jolie. Yeah, I think you make a good point. I think it's very realist um, and obviously very kind of close to the memoirs. And I think it tries to show the humanity within the evil, that everyone involved is just humans and that they're kind of all trying to, I suppose, just get on in something that they don't understand. Um, in a, you know, everything's very quickly changed in their world um, and they don't really know, I suppose no one really knows their place in it. Um, and that's what's quite in, I mean, quite uh, a thing with the whole, um, the whole Khmer Rouge and, and uh, Pol Pot and everything. He basically wanted to rip the country back to nothing and create kind of like a... It's the a, whole year uh, zero thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, the whole year zero thing and start for, basically start from scratch. And he wanted to, he almost wanted to go back to, I think he called it like a, um, like a socialist collective farming community. And then over like 10, 20, 30 years, develop it into a, communist country with mechanized you know machines and starting to become very self-sufficient and things and in that kind of regard he didn't mind breaking a few eggs and by a few eggs i mean killing a quarter of the population of the country in the space of three years um what a massive asshole um but yeah and i think this does a really good job of uh, you know showing that people showing that there's still a lot of humanity within people, even in this horrendous situation, and, and even more humanity within the kids. There's a part in it where a lot of uh, kind of kids just um, meet up in a uh, kind of refugee camp, and they all immediately just make friends and like, hi, let's, um, you know, well, I think we should all stick together. I have a chicken. Let's <laughs> cook the chicken and eat it together. And it just like in such a everything so horrible going on. I think it just shows like the 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 nice amounts of humanity. And I think that's what 
this film does incredibly well. It's kind of hard to, to criticise through the prism of a normally kind of directed film because of the way it's done with child actors who, you know, are new to this in most cases and it's kind of trying to have a really realistic tone and things to it. Like there's no, there's no tricks really. There's no like special effects or CGI or like anything going on it just tells the story it's a bit like it almost feels like ron howard could have possibly directed this movie as well if you really cared about the subject yeah, the it's, very, um, it's like very meat and potatoes it is very much so uh, but because... i don't know how you would do that any differently without then starting to like take away from the story the story's what's important here and and i think it does that incredibly well no absolutely um i saw some reviews that were kind of mild that said that yeah it's quite a lot it's like seven out of ten and stuff which i don't think is fair to it the pacing is glacial is what they said or or like well how else were you supposed to tell this what did you want and but you're right it's not an action movie it's not exactly you can't uh that would be exploitation and um you're right uh and i think this is something that's true about a lot of actors who turn into directors they're they're far more interested rather than doing flashy camera work or editing tricks or or special effects and things that they very much tend to put a close-up look on the actors because that's what they know that you know that's what they know first and foremost and anything they learn about directing and writing comes after they've learned the craft of acting so they tend especially with their first few features tend to have handheld camera approaches and have it close on actors and then have some mid and wide shots just to get establishing shots and things like that. And very much what Angelina Jolie does. It's very economic filmmaking. But people often confuse economic filmmaking with, you know, if it's not flashy, it's not good. Because if it's not flashy, I can't point at that thing and go, cool, blimey, look at the direction there. But of course, you know, to be transparent, to be invisible, is a form of good directing. And I think that's Mm -hmm. something Angelina Jolie does very well here. And the script is very economical as well. It makes you care without doing what I like to call mother never took me to the zoo type dialogue where people make deliver soliloquies. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or soliloquies or monologues and things like that. It's very simple. It's like a scene where they're sitting around eating the kind of meager thing that they've managed to find because they're being starved to death in this camp. And they go, what, what are you looking forward to eating when you get back home? Oh, I'm looking forward to this. And, you know, that's enough. I know that this family cares about each other. I know that they love each other. That's all I need to know. That's all I need to see. No, absolutely. No, I think I, I think for the story it wants to tell, it does an incredibly good job of it. No fuss, no muss, just like gets to the point. Absolutely. Um, and I think the slow pacing is important because I think a lot of the slow pacing is reading people's facial expressions and what's going on and what's you know is happening uh, i think yeah no i agree very much i think that. it does a very good job of that i think that probably brings us to the end of the review for first they killed my father yes i think so and i think that about leaves us time for an advertisement break and welcome back from the advertisement break i this- buy that for a dollar Oh, I was hoping you weren't going to do it on this episode because we're meant to be really respectful and nice and you have to go and make a joke. Have to do it. Anyway, as I was saying, welcome back to a very special episode of uh, Untitled Film Podcast about the Cambodian genocide. Callum has just his, made a joke. He's whipped his serious voice out, people. I have. He's doing the very hushed thing. So the second movie we're going to talk about this week 
is the 1984 classic, The Killing Fields. Um, so The Killing Fields is the story of uh, death prom, death, uh, uh, I've fucked up pronunciation already, <laughs> death prom. Um, and I've actually forgotten the journalist's name because I care less about is, him. Uh, Sydney. Sydney, what's his last name? Uh, Shannonberg. Uh, so yeah, Sydney uh, Shannonberg or Shannonberg. Shannonberg. Sydney Shamberg. Uh, uh, Sydney Shamberg was a writer for, I want to say, the New York Times. Yep. Uh, and he and his um, he was covering the Vietnam War from the Cambodian side, and his translator slash partner in crime, some would say, Dith Prom, um, or, uh, who was is Cambodian, uh, a court in the fall of Phnom Penh, uh, which is when the Americans very sheepishly pulled out uh, and the Khmer Rouge rolled in and took over um, uh, Phnom Penh, at which point they hide out in the uh, French embassy for a while uh, until it is decided that all Cambodians must be given back to the Khmer Rouge and everyone else is going to be given free passage to the airport, at which point two very different stories happen. Dithprom has to lose everything about him and pretend that he is just... uh, so just that's not an expression, but that he is a taxi driver um, from Phnom Penh, uh, because anyone who was a journalist or a doctor or a teacher or anything like that were often killed by the Khmer Rouge uh, because they were seen as possibly being subversive, subversive people. And while uh, Sydney goes back to uh, the US with Dith's family, who he'd already got out, um, and tries in vain to find him. Uh, and on goes a very important movie. Uh, Callum, what are your thoughts on The Killing Fields? Well, you're right. It is a very important movie, and it is a classic. I was trying to pinpoint whether 1984 was still in the period of New Hollywood, because of New Hollywood was when auteur filmmakers were given quite a lot of money to do, you know, to tell very important stories, to tell kind of uh, much uh, richer stories, but with Hollywood type money. And I was looking on Wikipedia, which isn't the best source, and they seem to say that it stopped in 1983. But I'm going to say that this is new Hollywood adjacent because it's 1984. It's just, it's still a lot of money coming around. So they can spare a lot of time and expense on a story that needs to be told. Um, so here you have uh, cast members like John Malkovich and uh, Sam Waterston and um, the late Julian Sands, who died recently this year, uh, to tell a, you know, a, a very important story, to, to give it a rich context, to give it um, splash and spectacle, but not in a way like we were talking with um, First They Killed My Father. You know, you don't need splash, you don't need spectacle. Not in a way that's exploitative, just in the way that a movie of this size requires a budget, because unlike First They Killed My Father, which is from a child's point of view, so it's very low to the ground, this tells it in a broader sweep, both in America and in Cambodia. And you need to feel the trauma on both sides, both from Dith, who is uh, very much caught in the thick of it, especially when he can't leave as the Western journalists do, and also the guilt that um, the journalist feels when he leaves him over there and you know, he's, he's trying to explain away. I've sent hundreds of letters. I'm trying to get him out. I'm trying to do everything I can. And people are like, but are you though? And I like that sort of push and pull between the two stories. And yeah, it, the one about the journalist is slightly less interesting just because one is walking through, you know, after 
everything that he goes through, walking through literal killing fields of the title. And the other is collecting an award at a ceremony and feeling guilty. It sidesteps the issue of a lot of modern movies, uh, the white person solves racism, white savior trope, by making Sidney quite so ineffectual. Uh, his guilt is very moving and very touching. But you're kind of on the side of John Malkovich when John Malkovich says, you didn't do nearly enough to get him out. You're going to go, yeah, I kind of see both points here. But yeah, you probably you had the chance earlier and you said, oh, well, we'll come back to the subject. So it's a very humanly told story for that reason in that it doesn't quite let him off the hook, although his guilt is portrayed in a realistic manner. Um, yeah, he doesn't really do any of the saving, put it that way. Exactly. For a white saviour, he's pretty bad at it. And uh, this is probably the best I've seen um, Sam Waterston. I, I, I've rated him as an actor, but I've never been of the opinion that he's like one of the best of the best. But this is honestly the best I've seen him. Maybe this and uh, the adaptation of uh, The Great Gatsby, in which he's also very good. But this is uh, the best I've seen him. And of course, Dith Pran is played by a first-time actor who someone who actually lived through this. Uh, hopefully I get the name right. Hang S. and Gore, uh, who won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor and then unfortunately was uh, tragically murdered not so long, about 10 years or so after this film was made. But it's so very moving here. I mean, he really is a star performer. This is like a movie star being made. Um, which unfortunately didn't translate because of Hollywood racism at the time. No other films really materialized for him. But it's a star performance from a non-actor. And he holds his own just as much against John Malkovich, Julian Sands, Sam Waterston, you know, in order to win his Oscar. But no, it, this is a, a fantastic movie. Absolutely. No, I 100% agree. I really, really, yeah, uh, I really like this movie. I like, there's a lot about it I like as well. I I think it really portrays that kind of like the madness in the, I think first off it doesn't let America off the hook and I think it shows in two ways how um, America led to the, the Khmer Rouge in the first part in the bombing campaigns and things in Cambodia which really led rise to the Khmer Rouge because the people in these small villages were like, hang on, why is the government aligning and helping the Americans when they're being massive dicks and bombing our country and killing our friends and family? I think it it starts to show that at the start. And I think then it does a good job of showing how America just abandons the place. Um, And then it does a very good job of showing the the fallen on pen and how that all happens. And then it also does a very good job of showing the, the, the depravity of the Khmer Rouge's rule. And it also does a very good job of telling this story, which is at the core of it, of these these two people who both kind of wanted the same outcomes and ended up with, you know, very different things for a long period of time for a few years because of, you know, where they're from, the colour of their skin and, and things. And I think so there's a huge, um, yeah, I think it's a really complex story that's told incredibly well. It's incredibly harrowing at times. Um, and I also really like it technically. I think it looks very good. I think it's shot very well. I think there's some there's a really brilliant shot early on where um, they're both standing on a um, like a wooden hut. I suppose they really call it like a wooden house or something in a field, and you've got this beautiful sunset behind it with the which is kind of how I when I think of Southeast Asia having lived out there, kind of think of it a sunset that kind of really beautiful over you know 
big rice paddies with the beautiful kind of round trees in the background. So I think from that point of view, I really enjoy how it's shot. I think the action scenes are done incredibly well. I think it feels very realistic. And then I also really love Michael Oldfield did the soundtrack for it and it's incredibly chaotic and it shows the kind of, it's really dramatic and yeah, very 80s, but it kind of, it works incredibly well. And I, I like how that's done and how that works on it as well. So just kind of across the whole thing. I, there's not much I don't like about this movie. I, yeah, really, really enjoy it. So, um, and I think, yeah, all the acting is fantastic and, and it tells a really important story very well. Yes, it's very propulsive, as you're saying, the, the action, uh, but also the action in the small scale. Like uh, there's a scene where they're trying to find a camera in these places that are being abandoned to try yeah. and forge a, a um, passport to get him out. And uh, they've got to create a makeshift dark room, find a camera, any camera, doesn't matter what kinds, just, just find a camera. And, you know, there are times when you're, you're, you're clenching your fists and your fingernails are digging into your hand because it, it's just incredibly kind of white knuckles. So it's so suspenseful yeah. for, a, for a scene where they're just trying to get a camera to forge a passport. So, you know, and it equally holds up to something like, uh, uh, scenes of bombings or you know explosions mm. and um no it, it's very tight in that way it's also very good at showing the privilege i love the early scenes with sam waterston's going i had to wait in a, in a plane i st- stared at the back of some guy's seat reading the pamphlets on the plane you know it's like that that kind of privilege and then he's shown just how wrong he is in that kind mm. of respect he's this journalist you know this uh like, i am the important journalist here it's just a very well judged performance, and um, to hang a character on because, like I said, with this kind of story, you need a central thing. And these two guys are real people, but you need uh, something that you know. It's, it's all very well and good to tell a, a polemic or to get the soapbox out, but you need to tell an entertaining story and to mm-hmm. tell this story of a real life friendship that had all these ups and downs and someone who's learning from being privileged to being incredibly humbled. It's uh, it's incredibly moving. It's, it's all very well judged. I also think, and I think possibly what helps it be more so well judged, is that it was only made five years after the fall of the Khmer Rouge. So, you know, the fallout for it was still very much happening. Um, Vietnam was still occupying uh, Cambodia at the time and and things so the story I suppose was obviously very fresh in people's minds and you don't really get that so much anymore like you occasionally get it but it's very rare you get an event happens and the movie comes out about it five years later I can't think of a recent example uh, the only ones I could think of there was the Boston bombing one with Mark Wahlberg uh, oh, the Boston Marathon yes, bombing yes, one um, and there was another one with Mark Wahlberg with a, on a on the Deep Horizons oil well uh, platform and there was the other one about the terrorists on the train where they used the real the real, real guys, the Clint Eastwood film. Um, but other than that, it just doesn't seem to happen anymore. And I think that, you know, is quite an impressive feat to have the story happen and then be able to contextualise it and make a good movie out of it in five years, I think is quite impressive. Absolutely. No, I, I very much agree. And again, I think it was at a time when not people, not everyone knew. Oh, people saw it on the news and stuff, but I don't think people really knew what happened. And those shots of of um, death falling into the the rivers, just full of bones and bodies and things, I think just really brought home, to, you know, one point five million people in three years in a population of seven million people. What that is, that's like you know, it's like you walk into a room and there's four people in the room, and someone shoots someone in the head, and that's that's across the whole country for, for in the space of three years. It was just horrendous. 
Um, and yeah, it, and I think it's people need to remember when people look at these, you know, look at Russia or wherever these authoritarian governments, what's happening in a lot of places in Africa at the minute and turn a blind eye and go, oh, but I can't afford to go on to buy a new car at the moment or whatever. And you kind of look at what can happen and think people need to, you know, remember what happens in the world sometimes when they're no, having a, a first world problem moment. No, we should all be humbled by scenes that are playing out in, in the real world. And also how quickly things can slip and how quickly you can let authoritarians take over because, you know, even in Western countries, you only got to look at France and Marie Le Pen or here and uh, Suella Braverman or the States and Donald Trump and, things, and, you know, these are people that if they could would, I'm pretty sure, take over and get rid of any due process and, and, and then it's a slippery slope after that point as mm -hmm. Russia has found out in the space of like 10 years or however long it's been that yes, Putin's been in charge. Yes, so. So no laughs here. No. <laughs> <laughs> I did promise you at the start of this episode, no laughs. Anyway, um, but yeah, I think that probably wraps up the review of these two movies. So Callum, what are you going to give uh, First They Killed My Father? I think I'm going to give it an eight. I think... Um, I. I, I Nearly at a nine, but uh, I, I think I think an eight is good. I might need to watch it again to get the full kind of grasp of it. But at the moment, it's an eight. I think it's uh, very lean and very uh, economically made, and it's well judged in its smallness uh, and you know of telling a huge story, but in a, uh, such a small scale way through the eyes of a child. It's very well judged by Angelina Jolie, and uh, I think she's a very smart and um, smart director who clearly 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 cares a lot so i got my tongue twisted there um no i think an eight out of ten i think i'm gonna i'm gonna go that a little bit step further and give it that nine i think there's there's a few issues around maybe tightness um at times maybe there could have been 10 minutes cut out and stuff but other than that i i don't have much to complain about it and i think it's hands down angelina jolie's best dictor dictorial dictorial work <laughs> take a run at that again yeah directorial work um and yeah I, I really like it i think it's uh, i think it's an important movie and if you haven't seen it go and switch your netflix on and watch it but probably when you're in a the right space absolutely and callum the killing fields what did you think well i'd love to give it a 10 out of 10 but it ends with john lennon's imagine so one out of 10 obviously no i'm kidding of course <laughs> uh 10 out of 10 it is a very important work i think um this is one of the best films of the 80s, possibly. Um, and, you know, it's very humanizing, but uh, it knows how to mix the large and the small scale. It knows how to humanize its story. It knows how to, you know, in today's climate of the white savior narrative, which isn't really going away in terms of stories like this, so easily could have slipped that way. It avoids all the worst sort of uh, trappings and tropes. So I, I think this is a masterpiece, except for the last two minutes when, imagined by john lennon plays in which i want to burn the house down i'm going to defend john lennon's imagine <laughs> i think this is probably the only very good use of it in a movie but i think it has its place but no i think it's i'm going to give it a 10 out of 10 as well i can't really fault it i think it's a masterpiece in cinema and if you haven't seen it get on your amazon prime right now and watch it because you need to watch this movie it's a very important film you should watch it but also good it's not just important it's good as well yes of course I think that probably brings us to the end of this episode. Um, we'll be back next week, I'm sure, with something more We promise you laughs next week. We promise. Yeah. <laughs> Don't leave um, us. No. 
Um, I think, I hope you enjoyed this, a very special episode. It might be, depending on my schedule this week, the next episode might be broadcast from Jordan. So probably a man in Jordan. So uh, yeah, come tune in. And uh, if you haven't watched them, go watch these two movies now. We didn't mention it was our one year anniversary, did we? No, actually we didn't. It was last week was our one year anniversary. Hooray! So yeah, I've been doing this for a whole year now and I'm still haven't killed Callum, so that is good. I'd buy that for a dollar. That's it. That's, that's <laughs> safe. It's a good thing you were doing remotely to say that's what I'm saying. <laughs> anyway, peace out, guys. Bye. See you later. Bye. Sorry, Rob. (laughs) Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.